Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Sean, and uh, I've been on staff here at our church for 15 years now, but I still remember well what it's like to be in the shoes of someone who's about to get up and preach their first ever sermon. It's something that you don't forget, something that Josh won't forget, it's something that just you remember. So much so, actually, I was able to go digging today, and I found tapes of the first sermon I ever preached here before I came on staff. And the first sermon I ever preached here when I was on staff, uh, technology has just changed rapidly. That's not a commentary on age, but uh, the, you, just, you just remember these moments. These are sort of landmark moments. And uh, so it is uh, with great joy and encouragement to be able to invite Josh to come and preach. He's been here a number of years among us. We've seen his progress in the faith. He's on staff as our camp director as he studies at Heritage, and you're close to being finished five courses uh, after the summer until you wrap up your, um, your bachelor's in theology uh, to Heritage. And uh, part of his uh, studies require some internship and experiences in a local church setting. And so while he's on staff with us over the summer, we're gonna be folding him into some other opportunities. He's been part of a pastoral staff meeting. Uh, there'll be some other things that he'll maybe just sort of come along with us on but one of those is also giving him an opportunity to preach. And the purpose of tonight is not to uh, primarily evaluate, well, how good of a preacher is Josh? And it's his first sermon and all those types of things. Um, He's gonna open up the word. This is real, this is live. Uh, A pastor friend of mine uh, posted something in a chat we just used to encourage and pray for one another, pastors from different churches in the area. And um, he sent us this morning this quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones, what is the chief end of preaching? He says, I like to think it is this, it is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. And Josh has chosen to preach a passage, fittingly, as a first sermon, about the preeminence of Christ. And so we're here to hear about Christ, not to primarily evaluate or tease or encourage Josh, because that's what he's going to do, is open the word of God and set Christ before us. So, rather, please come and open up God's word and preach the beautiful, marvelous riches of Christ to us. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Well, good evening. Am I good? Yeah, I am. Perfect. Um, Good evening, church family. Good evening to family, friends. Thank you all for being here. Um, and for supporting me in this way. Um, It truly is a blessing to me. Um, Many of you have known me for a long time. Um, You have prayed for me. You have trained me up in the faith. Um, You've encouraged me, and I can truly say um, that it wouldn't be for the power of God, without the power of God working through the people of God in my life, that I wouldn't be standing here today. So thank you for that. Um, It's a tremendous privilege and blessing, something that, as Sean said, I will never forget and be able to watch on a live stream. I've never used a tape before. So, we'll <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for that. And I trust that you will be encouraged by God's word this evening. Many of you may know that I am someone who enjoys live entertainment. 
Whether it be the fast pace of a Blue Jays game, yes, that's slightly sarcastic, um, or the thrill of a live production at a theater, um, or the beauty of an orchestra, I find that live entertainment has a special way of drawing us in and keeping our attention for the entire duration of a show, unlike many other things can do. And that's why I'm always surprised and somewhat bewildered by people that can't seem to sit through these events. Whether it be that they lose interest or they move on to other things, you just want to go up to them and say, hey, pay attention to what you're here for. Maybe they are the people that get up every other minute to use the washroom or to get a snack. Maybe they are people that play a game on their phone the entire time. Um, or worst of all, the people that talk to you the entire time something's going on and you know who you are. Whatever it is, the, these events, what we see here is that distraction is something that humanity deals with and is a challenge for us, is it not? Distraction is something that has serious effects, grave and great consequences for the human. Research shows that distraction has led to much lower productivity. Distraction has led to endless relationships being broken. But it has one more effect that is perhaps much worse than all of these things. Distraction has an effect on the soul that is grave and it is great and it leads to dire circumstances and dire consequences. And Paul knew that this was true of the church of Colossae when he wrote his letter to them. He describes in chapter 2, verse 8, a church that was filled with philosophy and with empty deceit. It was a church that was struggling, working through things like angel worship, circumcision, the created order of Christ. All of these things were distracting them from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were people that were absorbed in tradition and in opinion, and in many ways the gospel was foreign to them. And Paul wrote this letter to a church that, like a camera lens, had gone out of focus and needed a fresh reminder to focus on the beauty, the life, the one who died for them, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this evening, do you ever feel like someone in the Colossian church? I'm sure many of us do, myself included. We have minds, desires, a heart that drifts, that gets distracted, that struggles to stay fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure we can all relate to that hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. And so if you are someone who too quickly gets absorbed in trends, in voices, in opinions, in discussion, in tradition, in religiosity, and even gets distracted in sin, and you've suddenly lost track of the gospel, I trust that tonight will be reorienting for you. If you are somebody who knows that horrible, gut-wrenching feeling of returning to the Lord after days, after weeks, after far too long of being without him, then I trust that tonight will help you to fix your life on Jesus, your King. Tonight, as we open a poetic and reorienting expression of praise, may you be encouraged in your faith. May you be convicted of areas of wandering. May you be spurred on to greater trust. And may you be absolutely fixated on Jesus Christ 
and so orient every area of your life around him. Tonight, as we come face to face with who Paul says that Jesus is, my prayer is that you would be consumed in worship, that you would be consumed in praise and awe of our King, and that you, being captivated by him, would live a life that is fixed on Jesus Christ. Christ is King over all things. Fix your life on him. Christ is King over all things. Fix your life on him. Allow me to pray as we open God's word this evening. Father, as we come before you, we come as needy people. We come as people that are in need of your grace, people in need of your redirection in our lives, God. And we come before you humbly asking for your help in doing this. God, help us to be transformed by your word, and may we be conformed to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in, on verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the blue one in front of you. It's on page 983 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that home um, and to read it. It's our gift to you. For our Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Christ is king over all things, and tonight I would like to demonstrate for you, through God's word, how Paul expresses this in a way that fixes us on the beauty of Jesus Christ. What makes Christ so great, so worthy of us following him? Well, Paul begins in verses 15 through 17 by declaring the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ over creation. Everything that exists in heaven and on earth, under the earth, it's all his. Christ created it. He is worthy of fixing our lives on because he is the king of creation. Let me read verse 15 through 17 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is king over creation. And Paul begins this section by giving us, presenting a title for Christ that demands preeminence. It demands paying attention to. Christ is, in the beginning of verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Do we need anything else? He is God in the flesh. Christ is king because he is the invisible God made visible. Until the point of Christ's resurrect or incarnation, God had been out of sight, only seen to his people through his works and through his word. But Christ, in his person and in his work, gives us the fullest possible portrait of God that has ever been seen. Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, that when you see him, you see God the Father. And the word here for image that you see in verse 15 is the word by which we derive our English word for icon or for representation. Jesus is the icon, the representation of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3 calls him the exact representation of his being. And so think with me, what does an icon do? Or what is an icon? Well, for example, Albert Einstein would be an icon of modern science. Or think of Winston Churchill, an icon of leadership in World War II. Or you can be thinking of non-human icons. If you see a little white bird on a blue background, you know this is the icon for Twitter, right? Or if you see a swoosh and it says, just do it, we know that's the icon for Nike, Icons hold weight. They represent, they are a portrayal or a picture of something. And so for Jesus to be the icon, the portrayal, the image of the invisible God, it holds much significance and we must pay attention. Jesus is king over creation because he is God. It simply rests in who he is, God himself. However, Paul does not end there. Yes, he is God, and as king, he sovereignly is connected to his creation, working in it, which therefore, as Paul says in the second half of verse 15, makes him firstborn over creation. Yes, he is God, and now he is firstborn. What does Paul mean by saying that he is firstborn? This might be an unfamiliar phrase to you. You might be asking, what, how is Jesus firstborn, and why would that make him superior? Perhaps some of you firstborns out there are saying, of course that makes him superior. But perhaps, for some of you who have never heard this term in a biblical sense, you're wondering, does this mean that, God, that Jesus was a created thing? Well, he's not. We've just unpacked that Jesus is God, and therefore he's uncreated. Look back to passages like John 1, verse 1 to 3. And so when Paul describes Jesus as firstborn, he means something of much greater significance. Throughout the Bible, the term firstborn indicates a position of rank, of worth, of honor, of supremacy, of preeminence, rather than just birth order. Look at Psalm 89, verse 27, when Yahweh calls David his firstborn, making him the highest king under heaven. Or go back to Exodus 4, verse 22, when Yahweh declares Israel to be his firstborn son, 
his prized possession. Therefore, when Paul is calling Christ firstborn over creation, we can be certain that he is, he is declaring Christ to have the highest rank of honor, the supreme one, the preeminent one over creation. And what makes him firstborn? What makes him the supreme one? Well, it's because of what Paul describes next. His preeminence is seen, manifested in three different ways as demonstrated in creation. And the first thing that we know in verse 16 is that he is the creator of creation. For by him all things were created. Christ is the creator. His kingly supremacy is manifested by creating all things, even the thrones, dominions, authorities, and powers of the spiritual realm. Every single thing in this world was created by Christ. But dare we stop at such a macro level. Remember that Christ created you. When you struggle to understand your worth or your identity or, you, or your value, remember that the king of creation created you personally. Psalm 139 says that you were created fearfully. And you were created wonderfully. Remember that word for icon that was used to describe Jesus? Well, the same word is used to describe us as being made in the image of God. Parents, grandparents, as you seek to raise the young hearts and minds in your life in the fear of the Lord, and it feels like you are going upstream against culture's ideologies, remember that you are leading them in the way of the Creator King. There is immense comfort and encouragement in that. Do not be distracted by everything that would say otherwise. And Christians, as we go into this world, fix your life, fix your teaching, your discipleship on the King. Call others to, to serve and to follow their King. Because as Paul secondly notes in verse 16, he is, Christ is the goal of creation. We see that at the end of verse 16 where Paul says all things were created through him and for him. Not only is he the agent of creation, he's the recipient of creation as well. Everything that exists from the mountains and the oceans, the forests, the deserts, human beings, everything that fills this earth was created for Christ. And I don't think that anyone says it better than Kent Hughes when he notes, everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth at his command and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and he is the end, the alpha and the omega. And one day, everything will give him glory. Isn't it an incredible thought that when the triune God set out to create, as the Spirit rested over the water, as the Father spoke and through the Son, creation came about, Paul says that even then, it was for the glory of the Son, for the one who would become incarnate, for the one who would come to earth and be humiliated, die on the behalf of sinners, all that he might redeem all things to the glory of his name. Isn't it wonderful, friends, that the King who created us promises that all things, even the very worst things in this world, will be for his glory and purpose. 
that which afflicts you, that which brings you pain, fill in the blank, all the things that make life unbearable, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All things were created for him. He is the goal of creation. And so firstly, we see how, does Christ, how is Christ's preeminence shown in creation? Well, he is the creator. He is the goal. And thirdly, from verse 17, he is the sustainer of creation. Look with me at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator. He is the goal. He is the sustainer. Isn't it a blessing to know that the God who created is the God who sustains. He doesn't leave us on our own to fend for ourselves. He is intrinsically, sovereignly, and personally holding all things together. And without him, nothing would exist. Everything would fall apart. Perhaps you know of the role of a queen bee in a colony of honeybees. A queen bee, many of us know that they're important, but we don't know much more past that what the role of a queen bee is. Well, a queen bee is important, and the colony of bees cannot survive without her because she is the only one that produces eggs to continue the generations of bees. But also, you might not have known this, she creates a chemical that is released into the colony and unites all of the bees together. She holds them in unity, and without this chemical, the bees would all fall apart and be in shambles, would they not? And I believe that these are times in creation when our sovereign yet personal God gives us illustrations of his sovereignty in a way that we can understand to help us know him more. As Paul says in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the same God who in him we live and we move and we have our being. Friends, you can trust Jesus. As his creation, he sees you, and he knows you, he loves you, and he hears you. Do you ever struggle to trust when it seems like you are alone? Do you ever feel like just looking up and asking, hey, does anybody else see what's going on down here? Do you ever feel worried, anxious, or afraid? Do you ever wonder if you'll be protected, for, protected or provided for? Jesus says yes, that he is always with you, that he will be with you. You will never be alone. He sees what's going on down here. He remembers his promises to you, and he protects and he provides for you. We simply need to look to the cross to see this as a reality because on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the greatest demonstration of someone providing for another. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus met the greatest need that we ever could have. Need for life, need for salvation, need for rescue from death. And so you can turn your life to him. You can fix your life on him because you can trust him. Because he is your provider. He is your protector. He holds this world he holds your life. He is the king of creation. And only when you turn to him and you fix your life on him, do you become a part of the new creation, part of the church, which is verse 18 through 20 tells us Christ is also king over. Christ is king of creation. Christ is king of the church. Let me read verses 18 through 20. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is king over the church, his new creation. Do you see the progression here? In verses 15 through 17, Paul is describing the created order, which Christ is king over all of it. And now as we move to verses 18 through 20, we're talking about his new creation, the ones that he bought with his own blood, the church. We who were once dead in our trespasses and in our sins have been made alive in Christ Jesus, and it is by grace that we have been saved. And that's why Paul describes the preeminence of Christ in the way that he does. Christ is king. He is the head of the church. Now think with me for a second. If you were ever to lose a finger or perhaps lose a toe, which some of you probably have, it would be horrible and we would be very sad about it. But we know that in many of these cases, life goes on, doesn't it? But if we were to lose our head the control center of our body, the operating station, well, life would be over. There would be nothing left for us. And just as we are dependent on our head, so are we dependent on the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body we have become a part of through the work of the Spirit. And so you might be asking, what makes him preeminent? What makes him head in this way? Well, we get that same word again as we saw in the beginning. He is firstborn from the dead. And again, we're not speaking in a chronological manner because we know that Jesus was not the first one to be resurrected. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He resurrected Jairus' daughter in Mark 15. Rather, when Paul is saying he is firstborn from the dead, what he is speaking of is something that is much more significant, a shift in human history, a guarantee that there can be a resurrection for all who trust in him. He is king because his resurrection is of magnificent significance. In many of our homes, including our own, and I speak to this as a middle child, the eldest child knows the reality, the unfortunate reality, that most of the time the parents are the strictest on the oldest child. But normally, when the, first, when the second child comes around um, and starts asking for the same things, that which is set in stone no longer is set in stone. And things start to be a bit of a question. Maybe it's about curfew, or maybe it's about technology. The parents start to loosen up. And just as the second child comes and makes a shift, benefiting all of the children that come after them, So here, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn, he is marking a shift whereby everyone who comes after, everyone who trusts in Christ can be resurrected from the dead. Hear the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul goes on to state that in verse 19, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, for this fullness to be displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? 
to reconcile all things to himself. The story of Scripture is exactly this. God's great goal is to reconcile all things to himself. He chose to live as a man, to be born in a stable, to endure hardship, temptation, and trial, to be a friend of sinners and a companion to the sufferer, to embrace the bitter blows and the mocking of kings and judges and rulers, to experience rejection from his closest disciples, to be whipped, to be beaten, to be destroyed by his own creation, to be nailed to a cross with a crown of thorns piercing his head, to breathe his last breath and feel the full weight of sin, to die in the place of those who continually reject him. Why? He chose this so that he might reconcile to himself all things and so be preeminent. Why would he do this? Why would the offended party seek to reconcile a broken relationship with an offender? If a store owner caught a thief who had been stealing for them, from them for years after years, we wouldn't think that's the onus on the owner to go and make amends, would we? And so why would Christ do this? So that, as verse 18 says, in everything he might be preeminent. Christ reconciled to himself us to himself in order that creation would be restored to the way that God created it, with him as the one in charge over everything, and specifically over his people, the church. And so I ask us, as a church, are we acknowledging Christ as our king? Are we centered around the fact that the God of all the universe came and died on a tree in order to redeem a people to himself? Or do we instead choose to rule ourselves, to make our own standards, to decide what's best? May we as a church strive to live worthy of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, may we depend greatly, worship reverently, evangelize fervently, and fix our lives on our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, there is hope in doing this, even as the world rages around us, and even as many of our brothers and sisters around the world suffer for the name of Christ. Why? Because as verse 20 says, Christ is reconciling all things. And Paul here isn't taking a universalist perspective. Rather, he's drawing on his words from verse 16, where he says that through Christ all things would be created. And just as all things are created through Christ, so they are reconciled to him. All things will come under his just and his kingly rule. Let me continue in what I read in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Church, do not be distracted. Press on. Our king is the victorious one. Christ is king over all things. Firstly, creation. Secondly, the church. And may I ask you, is your life fixed on him as your king? Let me read verse 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he 
is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Christ is king over all things. Is your life fixed on him? Perhaps recently you tuned into the coronation of King Charles. This event back in May came with quite the fanfare and the grandiosity that we would expect from a monarchy that is steeped in tradition and wealth and in power, right? Every single moment was choreographed and planned to perfection. And it's estimated that over 400 million people tuned in worldwide to view this event, many of whom King Charles is not even the king over. And so the question is, if 400 million people can be fixed on this monarchy, can pay such attention and reverence to them, how can we not pay so much more reverence, respect, and fix our lives on the king of kings? the one who reigns over every earthly monarchy, our creator king, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the creator and sustainer of this world, the one who has reconciled us to himself, how could we not fix our lives on him and seek to live for him? The reality is, friends, that he is the king of you, whether you know it or not. If you are in Christ, then you are, he is your king of joyful, and of willing submission. But if you don't, let this serve as a warning. One day you will know Christ as a king of dreadful subjection. But for those of us who are in Christ, Paul says in verse 21 and 22, he gives us a description of our state before the gospel. And then what happened when the gospel broke into our lives? We were isolated. We were lonely. We were alienated. We were without a home. But God intervened and called us his own in order that on the last day when Christ comes again, he would present us before him holy and blameless with Christ as our king. He has delivered us from alienation and he is delivering us to the hope of the gospel that we will see Jesus face to face and live with him forever. However, in verse 23, it seems as though we hit a bit of a speed bump. We've heard all of these things of who we were and who we now are. But then look at verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. What does this if mean? Is Paul saying here that we could lose our salvation? What happened to his glorious words of Romans 8 when he says that all that God knew, he predestined and those he predestined, he called and those he called, he justifies and those he justifies, he glorifies. What happened to that? Perhaps for those of you who are in Christ, you're sitting up a little bit straighter and wondering what comes next. What's the resolution to this statement? Well, rest assured that Paul isn't expressing doubt in the church's faith, or else he wouldn't have said in verse 23, continue in the faith. Continue to do what you are already doing as you look forward to the hope of the gospel. Hespeler Baptist Church, continue in the faith steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Do not be distracted. 
We do not need to move past the gospel, nor ever should we. Because as Romans 1 verse 6 says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Alistair Begg asks the question, how easy is it for us to grow cold to these truths? For familiarity to breed, if not contempt, then complacency. Let this be a moment when you consider your life before Christ. Let this be a moment where you consider the distractions in your life. Paul is asking the church, he is asking us to ensure that we are continually fixed on Jesus Christ, regarding him as our king. Because as the late J.I. Packer puts it, the only, the best proof of past conversion is present convertedness. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you are struggling with today. I don't know what is distracting you. What sin plagues you that you are unwilling to give up? And what areas of your life you have not laid down before the throne of Christ? But know that when you do, there is grace for you there. Our king, yes, he rules with justice, but he also reigns with mercy. He will not cast you out and he will not condemn you. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. If you fix your life on him, you are met with love and compassion. And so let this be a moment that you evaluate your life before Christ. Perhaps you have never regarded Christ as your king. You've never considered fixing your life on him. And so I would plead with you, do not delay. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. Perhaps you are in Christ and you have been drifting wandering. You've been distracted. Now is the time to reorient, to fix your eyes on your glorious Savior. And when your heart is condemning you, remind yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, even for the most wandering soul. And so as people that, like the church of Colossae, face many distractions and temptations to veer away from the hope of Jesus Christ, May we hold fast to our confession without wavering because he who promised is faithful. May all the things that charm us most, all the things that distract us the most, whether it be wealth or works, self-righteousness, self-help, good deeds, may they all be laid down at the foot of the cross and no longer clung to for salvation. There is no stability. There is no hope in these things. The gospel is the only hope for humanity as we fix our eyes on our Savior who has come and is coming again. And to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ is to be invited into the throne room of the King. Not as a prisoner of war, but as one of his prized sons and daughters, experiencing all the privileges and rights of being his prized possession. There is no greater joy there is no greater hope. There is no life found apart from fixing your life on Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. Run to Jesus, friends. We serve a gracious Savior. Christ is King over all things. Fix your life on Him. Christ is King of the church. Christ is King of creation. And I ask you today, is your life fixed on the kingship of Christ? Let me pray. Father, we 
We come humbly before you and we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the ways that it convicts us, for the ways that it draws us closer to you, God. And I pray that as we've heard your word, that we'd be transformed by it and that our lives would be fixed on Jesus Christ alone. And I pray this in his name. Amen.